that sister got married in Maryland. It was officiated by four pastors, one of whom is here with us today to bring the word. His name is Dr. Dan Juster. He has served in the Messianic Jewish movement since 1972. Up until then, he was a Presbyterian pastor. He was the founding president of the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, known as the UMJC, and is the founder of Tacoon International, a network of congregations and ministries in the U.S. and abroad dedicated to the restoration of Israel and the church. He and his lovely wife, Patricia, live in Jerusalem. He's an international speaker on the relationship of Israel and the church and an author of several books, which we have available in the foyer, relating to the church's responsibility to embrace Israel as a key to the kingdom of God and more. He has a BA in philosophy from Wheaton College. His master's is, is from McCormick University and a doctorate in theology from New Covenant International Center. Dan has taught as an adjunct professor at Fuller Seminary and also teaches at the King's University. We're honored to have him worship with us today. And uh, can we show him some love? Dan Juster. I'm delighted to be with you. You are highly recommended. And we have a common friend in Pastor Lotta's daughter, Summer, who was my student for three different seasons at Gateways Beyond in Cyprus. And she was a great student, eager to learn. So I'm sure that that makes some connection for you. I brought some books for you because when I got out of graduate school, I decided, thankfully, I would never have to write anything significant again. Boy, was I mistaken. You know, you get compelled, just like Jeremiah the prophet was compelled to prophesy, I felt compelled to write books. I couldn't get out of it. I wanted to. So there's a number of books out there that I highly recommend to you since I wrote them. And I wish people today were reading more than just doing shallow things on the internet. But you can be countercultural and buy a book today. That's to make a statement against our superficial internet culture, which is full of error as people think they learn something when they really are being propagandized. So uh, buy a book. That's a great thing. Uh, one of the foundational books for us is Israel, the Church in the Last Days. I'll be preaching about that today, where history is going, how it's going to end up, the second coming, the nature of the Jewish people, one new man, the calling of Jewish people and Messianic Jews, this little book, Irrevocable Calling, the most translated uh, of my books. It's in Japanese, Korean, uh, uh, Portuguese, French, and so I want to recommend that one to you. A little primer on church history that they may be one and where the church is going. A mutual blessing on where the ultimate end of things is as we enter into this glorious restoration. Um, relational leadership, prosperity, getting prosperity right, not kind of, you know, the right to opulent living, that's not what the Bible is teaching.
but it is teaching prosperity, and you want to get that in terms of how you can financially prosper. Everybody here want to prosper beyond finances? This little book is there. And then a book, Passion for Israel, on the history of the Protestant movements joining with the idea of the restoration of the Jewish people to the land and their salvation. That's an over 450-year history of amazing discovery that part of that church history gets forgotten, and this book will amaze you. And there are several others, my book on Jewish roots. I have an apologetics textbook called Jewish Roots that is a defense of biblical faith, which is used as a textbook in colleges, and not impossibly difficult to read, I hope. And then, uh, uh, like I said, biblical theology from a Jewish roots perspective called Jewish Roots, and it's all out there, and I want to encourage you to buy a book, and you can even buy more than one. You could buy them all and give them out for Christmas presents. Yes, what an idea. Give a book for a Christmas present. Yes, that's a great idea. And you can sign up for our newsletter, which will connect you to significant Jewish ministry in the United States and Israel. Restoration from Zion is the name of the ministry for Ben and I that's part of Tikkun Global. And uh, you can fill out a card or sign up on the table in the back. And then you can tear off this card to remember us Put it on your refrigerator. Pray for us because we depend on your prayers. So please sign up. And if you don't like the message, you don't have to sign up. But if you like the message at all, I want you to sign up because we have a lot of other messages too. So how about a Hebrew lesson that's very fitting for Thanksgiving? How many would like a Hebrew lesson? It's okay. If you don't want one, you can... Not raise your hand, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, whether you like it or not. A Hebrew lesson. Do you know that the Thanksgiving holiday was based on the reading of the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, in the fall when they had the final harvest in Israel, and they would bring in the harvest, and they were supposed to have a celebration, not just for a day, but for a week. And Israel was commanded on this feast, one of the three pilgrim feasts, in the fall, they were commanded to rejoice. That was the commandment, to rejoice. What a command. You are to rejoice. Sometimes that makes it a little difficult to rejoice if somebody commands us to rejoice, but it was there nevertheless. And so they were to show thanks. Now, do you know what the word thanks is in Hebrew? It's the word hodu. And we sing hodu, hodu, Adonai. But here's something that will really connect you to this Thanksgiving feast. Do you know that the word hodu is also the Hebrew word for turkey? <laughs> Boy, languages can be confusing sometimes when you have the same sound of word meaning such vastly different things. Thanks and turkey is connected in the Hebrew language, not in American. So we're going to have, I'm not going to be with my children in Israel, but they're going to have a turkey for Thanksgiving there. Now, what country do you suppose hodu means? 
not Turkey, unfortunately, but India. Boy, is that ever confusing. India is Hodu. So that's a little Hebrew lesson for you. I hope that's helpful or strange anyway. Well, Father, please open ears and minds to this message today. In the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen. I want to talk to you today about the most important things to understand about the last days. You can try to figure out Revelation chapter 9 and how it can be that locusts look like lions with hair like women and who these locusts are, demonic spirits probably, and you can worry about all the details in the book of Revelation. And I have a book, I don't know if it's back there on the table, probably is Passover Key to the Book of Revelation that does talk about what all these things mean. But, you know, it's not very important to know about all these details, but there are some things that are very important for you to know about the last days. So I'm preaching today about Israel, the church, and the last days. And it's important to understand this. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives us a sense of the last days and when this age will be over and we will see his return and the glorious coming of the age to come, which we will all be participants in if we know Jesus, Yeshua. He says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13 and 14, but he who endures to the end will be saved, and this good news of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a testimony to nations, and then the end will come. This is the first point. How do you know when Jesus will return? It is when we have preached the gospel of the kingdom adequately to all people groups. Now, I know that goes against some of the teaching in the church today, that there's nothing that needs to happen before Jesus returns. But Jesus says that the end of this age will only come when we've adequately preached the gospel of the kingdom in all the world as a witness. And people who've discovered this, like the Moravians in the 1730s who launched the world missions movement, because Protestants weren't very much into that, saw this verse, and they knew that the coming of Jesus was contingent on succeeding in world missions. And even at Fuller Seminary, in the School of World Missions, and Ralph Winter, the idea is they want to see the gospel reach every people group significantly, leading to the return of the Lord. This gospel of the kingdom is connected to discipleship because Jesus said, go all, into all the world, and proclaim the good news, and that we are to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and that we are to teach them to obey all that he has commanded them. We are to disciple the people from the nations and teach them to obey all of his commandments. Now, I want to say part of what is important about this is what the gospel of the kingdom is. The gospel of the kingdom is not just about saying a prayer so that you'll go to heaven when you die. 
It's a much bigger gospel, a much more exciting gospel. Yes, going to heaven when you die is part of the package, but it's a more wonderful thing than that because the gospel of the kingdom is an invitation into the realm of the kingdom of God that's broken into this earth with the coming of Jesus. It's a gospel that comes with signs and wonders confirming it, and the invitation is if you will enter the kingdom of God and live in and from it, God will put everything in your life and right order and the kingdom of god will come into manifestation through you through your church and through all the things that you do so when we pray your kingdom come your will be done we're not just praying about his second coming we're praying about kingdom manifestation through me and through god's people today this gospel of the kingdom of signs and wonders, of transformation of life by planting discipling communities must be preached in all the world as a witness. And then comes the end of this age and the dawning of the age to come. Isn't that exciting? Point number one, we need to understand that, that the last days is about completing that task. But in Matthew chapter 23, the chapter just before it, we find that Jesus is talking about something else that's connected to that that has to happen. Now, these two purposes don't get connected until the writings of Paul, but the second thing is very important. He says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, Baruch haba that is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this has been seen for hundreds of years by people who believed in the restoration of Israel, believed by those that planted the Christ Church, Anglican Church in 1840. It's believed that before Jesus returns, our people, the Jewish people, through their leadership, have to call upon Jesus to rescue them. That Jesus addresses Jerusalem because that's where the leadership is. He doesn't say, oh, Israel, Israel. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And where is the seat of Israel's government? Jerusalem. Where is the seat of Israel's religious, the strongest religious community of the Jewish people in the world? Israel, in Jerusalem. And he indicates here that Jerusalem must turn to Yeshua, Jesus, before he returns. So for people who are restorationists, they wanted to see the Jewish people return to their land, like the Anglicans and Lutherans in the middle of the 19th century, so they would come back to the land and be challenged with the gospel, and there they would accept Jesus and he would return. Now you could say, Dan, is this a kind of minority view that you have here? Actually, this view today, I was astonished to read it, is actually enshrined in the Roman Catholic Catechism. 
And you can look it up, paragraph 674 in the Roman Catholic Catechism. Every good Catholic must believe this because it's official doctrine in the Catechism. How many Catholics do we have here? Okay, one from the Catholics. The Catholic Catechism says that all of history is suspended waiting for the second coming, and that coming will not take place until his ancient people, the Jewish people, recognize him. And then they quote this very text, among others, in the Catholic Catechism. So I'm not just kind of a, like a, you know, speaking to you some minority strange view that nobody else has believed. Now, these two things are related, and I'm not going to talk about the interrelation just yet, but uh, I'll, I'll do that when I come back to this second point uh, and emphasize that. But the idea of the Jewish people accepting the Lord as a key to the second coming is a historic understanding of a significant number of church leaders and expository teachers of the Bible for hundreds of years. And how I went through six years of evangelical higher education and never knew that is astonishing to me today. But there's more. The last days is also about the unity of the church. And I want you to turn with me to John chapter 17. This is the third point. Verse 20, I pray not on behalf of these only, but also for those who believe in me through their message, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Wow. How did I not understand that? Jesus prayed that we, the believers, would be one, that the world might believe. And that he is not going to come back, and the world is not going to believe until the church comes into significant unity. Those that are building their own separate kingdoms and don't care about the unity of the church in their area those who build significant apostolic networks and build denominations but don't care about the church coming into unity are hindering the return of the Lord and are hindering the fulfillment of his purposes on earth. Back in May, a few of us Messianic Jews sat with the leaders of the World Evangelical Alliance the World Evangelical Alliance represents 600 million Christians. 600 million. They tell us that out of the 600 million, 400 million are Pentecostal slash charismatic. Wow. The handwriting's on the wall. The future is with the Pentecostal charismatics. Anybody who studies the progress of missions knows this, right? And in the WEA, WEA, they see their work as connected to John 17, that they are seeking to build world John 17 unity leading to the return of the Lord. It's not just a false ecumenical thing where we seek unity. 
And we're not talking about a structural hierarchical unity. We're talking about ways of cooperative unity among true believers all over the world. Now, you'll find that this is going to have to come from leadership. So if you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, there is an amazing text here. As you're turning there, I just want to note that Jesus says he prays for that unity so that we might be with him where he is. And some people understand John 17 as having to do with the second coming. He says, I pray that they might be one, that the world might believe, and I pray that those who have come might be with me where I am. Ephesians chapter 4. How did I not understand this? 40 years ago, the Lord revealed this to me over 40 years ago. But I can't believe I wasn't taught this. Look at this. Ephesians 4. Ephesians is the key book in the Bible for understanding the church or the ecclesia of Yeshua. Ecclesia is better. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some as proclaimers of the good news, and some as shepherds and teachers, or pastors and teachers, to equip the holy ones, or saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of the Messiah. This will continue until we all come to the unity of the faith, And the knowledge of the Son of God to mature adulthood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of the Messiah. This will continue. Fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers will continue to equip the saints until we come to unity and until we come to the fullness of the maturity of Messiah. Before Jesus comes back, we're going to come to unity. Before Jesus comes back, we're going to come to a place as the body of Christ that Ephesians here calls fullness of maturity. Are we there now? No. Are we there in the American church? God help us, not yet. We are a very undiscipled group. And discipleship takes place as we build community, and communities form people, not just lecturing with information. Discipling communities. But note that this passage also implies that there's going to be apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers continuing to do that equipping until we come to this point. So 42 years ago, the Lord spoke to me, and he said, I'm going to raise mighty apostles and prophets in the last days. And they are going to lead my church into unity. They're going to lead my church into this fullness. So this issue of unity is a key issue of the last days. But there's one more. In John 17, Jesus says, I've given them glory in this passage, he says, until we come to fullness of maturity. And that implies that we cannot come into this fullness of maturity without outpourings of the Holy Spirit and revival. 
In Acts chapter 2, we read about the great outpouring of revival that launched the new covenant people of God post-resurrection. And this is what we read. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Yoel. Now, you can go to the prophet Joel, chapter 3, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, and read what it says. And he quotes it here very exactly. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Now, I'm really not that old, but I'm starting to dream dreams, so I'm a little worried about it, but okay. Even on my slaves, male and female, I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. See, God's people prophesying is one of the signs of the outpouring of the Spirit. I hope you're all prophesying. And I will give wonders on the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and smoky vapor. Now that you read about in the book of Revelation and in the book of Joel as well and other texts. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And then note it talks here about world harvest, and it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Many scholars believe that what we read in Acts chapter 2 was the first installment of the fulfillment of Joel, but is not the final fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. Because it says that this outpouring is going to take place just before the final day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is almost a technical biblical term that has to do with God's coming in great judgment and wrath as well as redemption for his people. The two come together. Wrath, the judgment of God, harvest, and redemption for his people. And that began in Acts chapter 2, but the gospel did not yet go to the nations until later in the book of Acts. But what Acts is indicating here, and Ephesians is indicating, and John is indicating, is that there is a last day's revival to come. And the great last day's revival will be connected to completing the world harvest and will be, complete, will be con, uh, connected to our unity. And what comes first, unity or revival, or revival and unity? Many times revival brings division, but ultimately revival is going to bring unity and unity is going to bring revival. I don't know whether uh, how to put this together. It's a chicken and egg kind of a thing. Yes, the chicken comes first, we read, but who knows? But where does the chicken come from with that an egg? Well, God created the chicken. God made the chicken. He didn't just make an egg, but I thank you, sisters. I, I do agree. But at any rate. But it's an amazing thing to think about how these I call them five things come together. First, the gospel of the kingdom and all the world as a witness. Making, uh, seeing Israel confess Jesus. Seeing world unity and world revival. And the fifth is seeing an apostolic prophetic restoration of leaders that are passionate for unity, revival, world evangelism, and the salvation of Israel. We've got to put all this together. 
Many people in the prophetic apostolic movements today are building their own kingdoms. They haven't come to this yet. Every true apostle should be passionate about unity, should be passionate about Israel, should be passionate about revival. And part of what we're into as a pro-church Messianic Jewish movement is seeing an embrace of what I call the apostolic prophetic task of the last days, to see these four, unity, revival, world missions, mission to Israel. Now, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 11, and you'll see something amazing as to how Paul puts this all together, and you'll see why I, as a Presbyterian minister, changed my life direction 50 years ago toward Messianic Jewish ministry. In Romans chapter 11, Paul says of the Jewish people, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their false step or false salvation has come to the Gentiles or the nations for the purpose of provoking Israel to jealousy. What an astonishing text that world missions, salvation goes to the nations with the end goal being to see Israel saved. Do you think the people that went to China to world missions understood that it was going to lead to the salvation of Israel? Well, actually, Hudson Taylor did understand that because he was connected to these restorationists in the 19th century that when we send missionaries to Africa and the African church was started, that this had to do with the salvation of Israel? But it does. Because, you know, this, this relates to my people, God help us, we're so hard and stiff-necked that we're not going to be saved without a world of Christians praying for us and caring for us and seeking our salvation. It's going to take that for us to come back to the Lord fully. Salvation has come to the Gentiles for the purpose of making Israel jealous. That means desiring what they see among the Gentiles. And Paul says, if their transgression leads to riches for the world and their loss riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Now, what does Paul mean by that? Their loss, they didn't accept Yeshua. They lost their capital. Jerusalem was destroyed. Paul probably knew the prophecy of Jesus that this would happen. But when Israel said no to Jesus, the apostles said, then we're going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember how in the synagogue Paul said, I've discharged my responsibility to you. Now I can go to the Gentiles. So every time there was a refusal, and the Jewish people have the first right of refusal, First right of refusal, once they refuse, then you can go to the Gentiles. But the gospel is still to the Jew first, Romans 1.16. So their refusal meant riches for the Gentiles. But how much more riches will their fullness bring? Much more riches. I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, and this means uh, nations, I magnify my ministry. What does that mean? You magnify the power and glory of God 
that's taking place in the mission to the nations. The signs and wonders, the transformed lives. I magnify my ministry if somehow I might provoke to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save some of them. For if their rejection has meant the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, this is pretty amazing. Paul is concerned to save some of the Jewish people because unless there is a significant sum that is first saved, it's not going to lead to the all being saved. Indeed, in verse 16 he says, if the first fruit is holy, so is the whole batch of dough. The Jewish believers are the first fruits that make the rest of the nation holy. Boy, that's certainly not where our Jewish unbelievers think. Hey, we are there making the rest of you holy because of us. You're preserved and made holy. You, got, you really need us because we are preserving you. And this is where Christian Zionists sometimes miss it. They want good relations with the Jewish people, but we're kind of in the way of their good relations because the Jewish people don't want to accept Yeshua, so they're willing to have good relations with Christian Zionists who reject the idea of sharing the gospel with Jewish people. But that's not biblical. I know we can be very emotional about the Holocaust and all that Jewish people have suffered, but it's not biblical to not give the gospel to Jewish people and to want them to be saved. It's right here. Paul says, I magnify my ministry if I might provoke to jealousy those of my flesh and save some of them, which he calls in Romans 11.5 the saved remnant of Israel. He says about the Jewish people, verse 28, concerning the good news, they're hostile for your sake, but concerning the election or chosen this, they're loved on account of the patriarchs, for the gifts and calling of God to the Jewish people are irrevocable. Now, I have a little booklet on that. What is the irrevocable call? What are the gifts and calling? Well, the gifts include the land. It includes being preserved as a people. It includes a pattern of life that is a testimony to truth. It includes being the only people, the only nation that can call upon Jesus and see him return. That is a function God's given to the Jewish people. Only that drummer on the kettle drum can hit that last boom to conclude the symphony. Jewish people have to conclude the symphony of this age, which leads to the symphony of the age to come. Only the Jewish people can hit that drum. Now, interestingly here, Romans chapter 11 puts together Matthew 23. You will not see me till you say, Blessed is comes in the name of the Lord of the Jewish people. And Matthew 24, the gospel of the kingdom must go through the whole world as a witness. Then the end will come. And Paul integrates those two and shows that they're interrelated. And that world missions has to also have as a focus a concern for the salvation of Israel and building up the saved remnant of Israel. So, 
I came back to the second point of my message. The first was the gospel of the kingdom must go all the world as a witness. Israel must be calling on him through Jerusalem. Blessed is who comes in the name of the Lord. The third, that's not going to happen without the unity of the church. We're not going to complete that without revival. And all of that's going to depend on God raising up a leadership of apostles and prophets to lead the church into all this. So those five key things. But I'm emphasizing here the Jewish part because I bought into that because, yeah, I could have just stayed a Presbyterian minister and preached all this. But I saw unless we raised up a Jewish living people who identify and are still part of their people so they could be the saved remnants, so they could be the first fruits, that we were not going to get there and that that wasn't happening. So at the time I entered into this, there were only three Messianic Jewish congregations in North America. I didn't expect it to mushroom all over the world and in Israel. And right now we're in Israel. Ten groups related to us in Israel, but others as well that we're connected to. And by the way, our big project is a Bible school that has this theology. We call, it, we call this theology restorationism, and that's what the name tikkun means, restoration. We had Derek Prince teach on this for us. When I discovered this, he was the first teacher I found that had this all together in his theology, and we invited him in 1982 to teach for us. It was amazing. So I've given my life to focus on this saved remnant issue but also restoration of the church. So, when will Jesus come back? He will come back, and you don't need to know anything else about eschatology or the symbols of the book of Revelation if you know that you are to pursue world missions, beginning with your witness in your own town. You are to pursue making Israel jealous, you're to pursue the unity of the church. You're to pursue revival and to pray for it and believe for it. And you're to believe for God to raise up the leadership of the last days to lead into this. You know all you must know. Those are the things that you must know that lead to the second coming. And we're getting close. We're getting close. So this relates to us. If you're going to do something practical in response to caring about these five things, then what is practical is to sign up for our newsletter so you pray for us. That's simple. Because we think that we are a connection that is closer to your theology than anything else out there. And by God's grace, we've had an influence. The theology of the King's University coming out of Gateway Church came through our teaching years ago. It's amazing. We have a, now a major school that's with us on this. And, but we are on the cutting edge of fostering this in Israel, and it's not being very much fostered in Israel. A lot of the Israel movement, contrary to the rest of the movement worldwide, is influenced by non-charismatic dispensational fundamentalism. We need your help. We need your prayers. We need your giving as well. But we don't make a big deal out of giving money 
because we think if you're praying for us and reading about what we're doing, God's Spirit's going to speak to you. We don't have to try to twist your arm. You'll see where the needs are. You'll, God's Spirit will bring conviction. So sign up. Buy a book. Help us out. Because we think that what we're doing is really important. And I've given my life to it. My son's giving his life to it. Paul back there is giving his life to it. And you know what? It's been an amazing life. It's taken us around the world, taken us even to meet the Pope, who said, by the way, you know what the Pope said? They get this. They get this. They're charismatic leaders in the Catholic Church. He said, if you people are who you say you are, then the second coming of Jesus is nearer than we thought. That's what Pope Benedict said. Can you imagine that? He got it. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for this congregation. Lord, that this congregation can be a key congregation in fostering these goals, these tasks of unity, revival, missions, and the salvation of Israel, and that it all is to come together. Lord, burn this message into our hearts in the name of Yeshua. I just want to encourage you because, as my dad just briefly mentioned, the church is shifting in its approach to Israel. And not only seeing the nation, the state of Israel as important, but that this real revival among Jewish people is important. And I meet with leaders, some denominational leaders of thousands of churches, streams. It's amazing that the heart is now seeing that this is a sign and a wonder in our day, that Jewish people coming to faith is significant as we prepare for Jesus' soon return. And that is exciting to me. I just want to encourage you to say, keep your faith. Keep encouraging those around you because the day is near. Our identity is secure in him. Yes, we're saved, but to walk out a life worthy of being followed. Walk out a life worthy of being an ambassador of the kingdom, and we're all in this together. We're going to rally each other and see that wonderful day, hopefully in our lifetime, but maybe in the years to come. Amen. And Lord, send a revival. Lord, send it now. Move your spirit. Heaven break out. Come now in power. Cover this land like you've done it before. Would you do it again? Lord, send a revival. Lord, send it now. Move your spirit. Heaven break out, come now in power, cover this land like you've done it before, would you do it again? Lord, send revival, Lord, send it now, move your spirit, heaven break out, come now in power, cover this land.
as I worship your majesty. I worship your holy name. Jesus, my everything. Oh, that I am is yours as I worship your majesty. I worship your holy name, Jesus, my everything. Oh, that I am is What is revival? I don't have all the answers, but I do know it is personal. You want church revival? It starts with you. It starts with me. Starts with us drawing nearer to the Lord than ever before and fully devoting our lives to Him and His purposes. Amen. Some have equated revival with spiritual experiences. It can include that. But if that's all it is, then it is not true revival. It's a constant awareness of God's will and a pursuit of it with all our heart. Are you ready to do that? Amen. Lord, make your people fruitful this Thanksgiving season like never before. In conclusion, I've asked Dan Jester to come back up and pronounce the ironic benediction upon us. Put your hands on your heart to receive. He asked me to do this in Hebrew and English, right? So I'll do it the way we used to do it, with a chant. Yevarachach Adonai v'yishmarecha Yer Adonai panabalecha v'echunecha Yisad Adonai panabalecha v'yisem lecha shalom The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. Go get them, tigers. God bless you.